Hello, and welcome to the Healthy Balanced Birth and Beyond podcast. I'm Olivia, your host, and on this podcast, we will talk about everything related to the journey to conceive, pregnancy, labor, birth, postpartum, parenthood, and beyond. This is a safe space where birth professionals, birthing people, expected parents, and partners can come on and share their knowledge or personal experiences with our listeners. The goal of this podcast is to create connections, share stories, information, and resources to educate and empower people in their own personal journey. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to this week's episode of the Healthy Balanced Birth and Beyond podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. I'm also super excited to have her on with us. Her name is Gabrielle, and Gabrielle is actually the first midwife that I've had on the podcast, so I'm very excited. She is a midwife, a mother, and a childbirth educator, and we actually connected on Instagram. So Gabrielle, welcome to the podcast. Would you like to tell everybody a bit about you? I would love to. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm honored to be your first midwife. I didn't know that. It's very exciting. Um, So I am a midwife, a mom, an educator, and also a coach. I have attended births over the last 10 years, including my own birth, which was 20 months ago. And now I work as a virtual midwife, educator, and coach supporting moms through all the stages of motherhood. So my job right now, instead of providing the awesome hands-on support that midwives and doulas do, Mm -hmm. um, my role is to fill in some of the gaps in our medical system so that pregnant and postpartum moms feel supported throughout their birthing and mothering process. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I actually did not know that you were doing the virtual portion, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, it's it's been a dream of mine for several years, and that dream became more solidified during my pregnancy when it became clear to me that my body could not grow a human at the same time. And stay up for three days in a row, which is sometimes the work of being a midwife and a doula. Um, So that brought me into the virtual realm. And so a lot of the women that I work with are people who are interested in home birth, people who are curious about the midwifery care model where there's a lot more education, there's more preventative medicine, and just more emotional holding throughout the pregnancy and postpartum process, but have chosen to birth in the hospital, whether it be for financial reasons or medical reasons Mm -hmm. or just their preference. And so my clients are able to be in their hospital birthing location and receive the more in-depth midwifery support that people get from home birth midwifery care. Okay. So when you, so if you're attending a birth, but you're not there physically, so virtually, so are you with, not with them, excuse me, are you in contact with them throughout their entire birth? Because I know you were saying there's a difference between attending a birth for however long it goes on for and then being virtual. Um, So are you, is it constant contact or is it a little bit more like broken up? Great question. So I, I have currently graduated (laughs) or at least paused from attending births. I am not actually attending births, although I do know doulas who are attending births virtually. And I can't say a whole lot about how the logistics of that work. The way that I'm supporting women is through their pregnancy and postpartum. And so we're meeting on kind of the standard obstetric schedule. So we meet once every four weeks and then two weeks, one week, and then I see them throughout their postpartum period. So most of the moms that I work with do have doulas who are attending their births in person. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify because I've I, everyone is doing so many different things, and a lot of it is based on like the hol- the hospital policies um, that continue to be f- are fluctuating right now. So I was just curious, um, but yeah. So thank you for telling us a bit about you and sharing a bit about the work that you do. The work that you do is so important, and so so many people need it. I, it's something that is always going to be 
around and something that women need in order to feel supported and empowered in their births. So thank you for the work that you do. So I would love to hear what your thoughts are on, we're going to be talking about what a birth plan really is. So would you share a bit about um, what you've done with clients beforehand with, and then also I'd love to hear a bit about how you set it up for yourself as well. Yes. Um, So birth plan seems to be the theme of conversation with all of my clients this week. So I'm happy that we're getting (laughs) to talk about it here together. Um, A birth plan is really, it's a blueprint of preferences surrounding your birth and immediate postpartum. So it's not a step-by-step, play-by-play vision Mm -hmm. of how the birth is going to go down so much as a process of educating yourself about your choices. So mm-hmm. the birth plan is a document that you share with your nurses, your midwives and doctors so that they can best support you in your choices. And in many ways, I kind of feel like the birth plan is in some ways more for the parents than it is for the care providers because okay. it gives the parents an opportunity to get educated, to get on the same page about the big and little decisions Mm -hmm. surrounding the birth and postpartum. Right. Yeah. And I totally agree. I remember even before um, we officially hopped on the podcast or on this call tonight, we were talking about how we like to use the word preferences instead of plan, because like you just said, it's not it's not going to be a straight and narrow route. Like birth is just not, it just does not go that way. So taking the time and educating yourself on all of the different options is something that I feel like is so, so important. And I feel like sometimes people just don't realize all of the different questions that may get thrown at you, whether it's and you're during your prenatal appointments, but specifically when you're in labor and when you're giving birth, they may ask you questions that if you're not prepared for them, you're not going to know what to do in that moment. And then also it's the piece of, well, you are currently in labor, so your mind is not really going to be focusing on figuring out how to answer their question or knowing what you want to do in that moment. Totally. Yeah. Three o'clock in the morning after you've been in labor for (laughs) a day or two is not the time to try and figure out, do we want the eye ointment? Are we getting the vaccine? What are our feelings about cord clamping? Um, So I think it's a really, I always tell partners, if there is a partner involved, that like, this is your cheat sheet. This is to remind you of the decision that you made at five o'clock in the evening when you weren't in labor (laughs) and you have your wits about you. And, you know, in addition to that, I, I really have seen working in and out of the hospital system for a decade that if you aren't educated and if you aren't clear about what your preferences are, um, some of these things are not even really presented as choices. I know. It's not really presented as an option. Do you want to do this or that? It just more often than not gets presented as, okay, this is what we're doing now. Yes. And so I really love the process of becoming educated about your options as a vehicle to empower birthing people and their partners to understand that there's a lot of choice mm-hmm. when it comes to giving birth in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And without that education, you might not know that you have any choice. Right. You're so right. And I'm so glad that you just brought that that point up because it's something that I feel so, so passionate about is that people know what all of their options are, that they realize that if their care provider says that they're just going to do something that they can say, Hey, no, that I'm not comfortable with that. What are all of my options? Or I've already written in my birth preferences that this is what I would prefer. And I think that like what you said, having birth, having the birth preferences put into a document for everybody to look at, I feel like obviously is very helpful for the person the birthing person and their partner, but it's also helpful for 
say if um, you can bring it to your your prenatal appointments, any of them, and just hand that to your provider so they can see that, so they're aware ahead of time. So it's not like you're just giving them something when you come and you're in labor. Um, I brought one with me or multiple ones with me to the hospital and literally like put it on the door when I was giving birth because I I just didn't want people questioning me. I didn't want people pushing things on me that I didn't want or that I had specifically said that I wanted nothing to do with. So like you said, it's important to know what your options are. It's important to know what the hospital policies are, what their standard protocol is, because like you said, a lot of the time they don't even ask. They'll just say, okay, this is what we're doing. And it's something that's definitely really broken within our healthcare system within the birth space. So that could be a whole nother topic of conversation that we could go on for a long time about, I'm sure. A whole topic of informed decision-making, informed consent. Um, But yeah, I think that it's a really important piece there. Yeah, it is. I wanted to circle back because you just talked a little bit about your birth and your preferences. You asked me about how I created my birth, my birth preferences, yeah. and um, so my my plan, and I had a plan. My plan was that I was going to labor at home and hopefully birth at home, and that is not what happened at all. Oh, okay. I knew going into it that that might not happen because I've attended enough births to know that our plans for <laughs> how we think things are going to unfold more often than not don't unfold that way. Yeah. So I ended up birthing in the hospital with an epidural. It was the most empowering experience of my life. And I think a lot of what was empowering about it was because all of my preferences were honored and respected. I have preferences around the newborn procedures and the positions I was in and the type of languaging that was used in the space. And so there was a way that I was able to adjust my plan but stick to my preferences. That is why a big part of why I think that reframing birth plan into birth preferences is really valuable because mm-hmm. birth is such a wildly unpredictable experience mm-hmm. um, that the more we can let go of the word plan, which has a lot of rigidity to it, the better we set ourselves up for success. Yeah, I so agree. And like you said, we never, you never know how your birth is going to go. And so that's where taking the time to prepare and educate yourself on these things is super important. And like you said, you were able to have a very empowering birth because of the way that you prepared for it and the language that was used and the way that you were supported. And that's what matters. We want people to be able to feel empowered in the decisions that they make while they are laboring and giving birth. That is so, so deeply important because it's not only important for the person giving birth, but it's also important for the baby. It's the way that they become a mother and the way that their baby becomes comes into this world. And it's a day it's a day that you're never going to forget. It's going to be in your mind for the rest of your life. Absolutely. And you mentioned that you brought your birth preferences not only to the hospital when you were in labor, but that you brought it with you to your prenatal visits, and that's something that um, is a great idea for Mm -hmm. people to do during their pregnancy, because it not only gives you an opportunity to hash out some of these details with your provider beforehand, but it can also act as as a screening test. You know, if yes. you bring your birth preferences in and you find out during that visit that your provider is not on the same page as you at all, that's a really great opportunity. It's an uncomfortable moment, but it's an opportunity to realize that you can find a new care provider. Yes. It's never too late to switch care providers. Yes. And I think that the birth preferences handout, you know, that piece of paper that you bring with you that you keep in your back pocket is really a tool for opening up really important conversations. Yes. Oh my gosh, I so agree. And I'm so glad that you just brought that up because a lot of the time people feel like they just have a an OB or a midwife and that's just who they have and they have to stick with them and they don't realize that 
that your care provider works for you. You don't work for them. And so you can, you can interview them. You can, I mean, we spend all this time during other parts of our lives, other big events, like for our wedding, we, we interview the different photographers. We look at all the different places that you could potentially get married. And it's the same thing, except this is even more intimate and personal. You want to have a care provider who's who aligns with you, who hears what you're saying and who respects what you're saying and is someone who listens to you and is going to help you have that supportive birth space that you can feel empowered in your birth like we were just talking about. So like you said also too, it's never too late to switch for, to switch providers. I've worked with people who literally switch providers at 37, 38 weeks um, because they just realized that they were not being heard or they realized that even when they were voicing what they wanted within the their birth preferences, their provider was just kind of going back and forth and not being very clear with them. And so it's so important. I mean, I say important all the time on the podcast. I feel like I sound like a broken record, but these things matter so, so much. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, this could be a whole separate podcast about yes. finding your birth team, which I'd love to do at some point in time, but yes. I'll just drop this little nugget before we move on, which is that I've had a lot of clients voice fear, apprehension around firing their care provider. It can bring up a lot of feelings and resistance around finding somebody new because you have to fire your OB who you've been with for you know, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just want to say that you'd never have to fire your care provider. You can just find a new person and then they ask for your records. It's one of the easiest things that you can do. And so I just like to take a brief moment to break down the stigma around switching care providers. It's yes. a really seamless and easy process that you have to do very little work in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I I totally agree. We should definitely do another episode where we talk about <laughs> <laughs> the birth team and building a birth team that is supportive and going to help you have an empowering birth because that, again, is another thing that's so important. <laughs> um, but yes, I would love for you to start talking about how you build your birth preferences and what you feel it, are all of the different, um, I guess, like bullet points that should be included in them. Great. So when it comes to creating your birth preferences, I recommend keeping it as simple as possible. A one page document is all that you need. Yes. If you come in with three to five pages of all of your passions and visions and strong feelings about all of these different things, it's just not going to get read. And so keeping it simple, bullet points. The goal is to get you and your entire birthing team, partners, doulas, nurses, midwives, OBs on the same page about your preferences for your birth. So this is really an opportunity to warmly communicate your needs. And it's all about kind and clear communication. I I really experienced this hands-on in my own birth experience where my doctor, after I transferred, had very strong feelings about how we did certain things or how long we should be in the hospital. And when you communicate respect, mm-hmm. um, it goes so much further than communicating opposition. Yes. Um, and so I think it can be really helpful when we are considering the following topics, which I'll get into in just a moment. If you are going against the mainstream medical grain, if you will, instead of seeing yourself as a rebel and as somebody who is in in opposition, it can be helpful to create a reframe of, I am an educated person who has body autonomy, and I respect you and your education, and I'm going to make a different choice than you're recommending. I love that. That is not out of disrespect to you. And I think that keeping that respect and that kindness can really help people get their needs met and eliminate some of the tension that can bubble up in the birthing room. Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that so much. I love that you are talking about shifting your mindset, but I feel like there is this stigma, right? That if we, if we do things differently, we're viewed as like 
in air quotations, like the difficult patient. And I love that you're saying, hey, you know what? I'm educated on this. I have done my research and I have decided that this is what I would like to do. And it is not saying that you don't know what you're talking about, but it's, this is just my choice. It's my body. It's my baby. It's my choice. I love that so much. Thank you for saying that. Of course. And as far as, you know, the actual details, there are so many things that we could talk about that can be included in, included in the birth preferences. But for today, I have a few different topics. We're going to talk about low lighting, IVs, electronic fetal monitoring, pain management, newborn procedures, and placentas. That is a lot right there, but there are <laughs> 20 other things that you could add, but we'll keep it simple for today's purposes. Okay, sounds good to me. All right, so let's start with low lighting. Really simple. Low lighting, you know, it's it's more than just creating a vibe. It has a real physiological impact on the person in labor. So when a birthing person has bright lights shining down on them, it can create the feeling of being exposed and watched. Mm-hmm. And in labor, bright lights tends to stimulate the neocortex of a woman's brain. So that's the part of our brains that we're using right now. It's connected to our language center. It helps us make decisions, which is very important, but not in labor. That okay. part of our brain can actually get us into trouble in labor. It's where we can start doubting ourselves. It's where we can start feeling worried and stressed out. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know we- that. I learned, yes. I learned something new every time I have a guest on. <laughs> so. Awesome. Yeah, so we're, we're actually trying to turn that part of our brain off, which is hard to do because it's the part of our brain we use the most, and stimulate our primal reptilian brain. So this is a part of our brain that is more ancient. Mm-hmm. It's a part of our brain that is connected to our body processes. So rest, digestion, making babies, birthing babies. And if you think about, you know, if you think about a cat in labor, I don't know if you have any animals, but we have two dogs. (laughs) Dogs? Yeah. Have have any of them, are any of them female and have birthed? Uh, So they're actually both rescues. So um, when we got, when we adopted our female dog, she was actually already spayed. Yeah, most dogs are not uh, procreating in the same way that cats are necessarily, but with cats, you know, most cats will run under a bed or in a dark hallway closet to birth their babies. They're Mm -hmm. not going to give birth in the middle of the living room with all the lights on and everyone watching. (laughs) And we're not that different than cats and dogs. And so on a primal instinctual level we want to like scurry into the dark hallway closet where it's private and the lights are low and we can more easily relax and tap into our more animal primal birthing power mm-hmm. so no lighting it's very simple and again keeping this on the birth preferences sheet reminds the partner reminds the doula yeah, the doctors came in, they turned all the lights on because they needed to administer an IV or chart something, and now we turn them back down. And so even if the team isn't upholding your preference, um, the medical team, your more intimate team of people that are supporting you can be checking in on your preferences and turning the lights down low. Yeah, and I think I love that because it's so true. And it's funny because my friend who I recently had on the podcast was talking about how her midwife was talking about the reptilian brain, but she was saying like the lizard brain. She couldn't remember the exact verbiage that she used. So I love hearing you say that because it's coming full circle and everyone who's listening to the podcast will hear that episode and now this one. Um, But yes, we, I feel like we don't realize how like... I don't know what the right word for it would be, just like how like sterile sometimes it can feel in hospitals and yeah. how it's bright and cold. And for me, that's how, how I, I think of it sometimes. It's just, it's very different and we need to make it feel more comfortable, more homey. Um, and it, I mean, this is different if you are giving birth at home versus in a hospital setting or in a birth center. But the way that we choose to birth and all the different 
pieces that go along with it, having the low lighting, like you said, is going to help us slow down, help us focus, help us not feel as exposed or like we're being interrogated. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And a great way to kind of navigate the lighting situation in the hospital setting is by bringing battery-powered tea lights or Christmas light strands. I've had people get really creative. I've had some doulas get really creative. Remember that you cannot bring a candle and light it in the hospital. (laughs) That is a big no-no. But there, there are ways to create a calm, ambient atmosphere. And again, as I mentioned, it goes so much more it, it goes deeper than just creating an environment on a physiological level. When the environment is dark, quiet, relaxing, it helps the birthing person physiologically feel safe and open. Yes. And you're so right. Because if, because think about, like we think about if we're at home, because even in some instances where the birthing person is in labor, having contractions, and they've been laboring at home, and they've been very comfortable in their at-home setting because that's where they live, right? And then there are instances where they, they get to the hospital, and then the, their labor starts to stall, and we have to we have to sit back and think about why that's happening, what we can do to help them feel more comfortable, and low lighting is absolutely one of the first things that we can do. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot that we can do to kind of bring the homey birth environment to the hospital yes. if that is where you're going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm glad that you mentioned the, the tea lights or uh, the non-flammable ones, I should say, the battery-operated ones, or Christmas lights or string lights, whatever, because it can just make a birth setting feel so like magical too. It's more calming the ambiance, the aura of the room. But then you also just have like little twinkle lights. It's just that's how I twinkle lights. Yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it for me. I think I love it so much. So I wanted to talk through what happens when people first arrive at the hospital. So okay. if you're, whether you're planning to give birth in the hospital or you're transferring from a home birth or birth center environment, one of the first things that they'll do is place an IV starter. Right. That's also known as the headlock. It might have different names in different places. And This, in my experience so far, has been standard hospital policy in every hospital I've worked in. And with an IV starter, the mother is not hooked up to an IV bag. Right. So you still have free mobility. You can walk around and move around without being tethered. Um, But rather, an IV catheter is placed in the mother's vein just in case medications are needed or there's an emergency. So this is a good choice for you if you are planning on any medications such as epidural or if there are complications that would make the labor or birth more high risk. Um, So if you're planning to show up at the hospital and get your epidural as soon as you get there, this is an excellent choice. However, this is not a great choice for you if you find IVs to be painful, which is the majority of people that I know Mm -hmm. um, are not like super thrilled about having an IV port in their vein. Right. Painful IV during labor, it can really throw a mom off her game. Yes. I don't know about you. I don't, I love administering IVs. I do not like receiving IVs (laughs) and I find them to be really painful and I've supported clients who have the IV port and it becomes a nuisance. They can't be on all fours. They can't like hug their partner in the way that they were before because it just starts to get in the way. Yes. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad that you're talking about that because I have, so one of the women that I know, she had two, well, she has three children now, but for her first two, she did more, more medicalized birth. And then for her third, she decided that she really wanted to try for a natural birth. And she did end up succeeding. Um, But the thing that she had mentioned to me was that she did get the HEPLOC. And she said it was the most annoying thing throughout the entire labor. She said it was driving her 
crazy. (laughs) And so, like you said, if you think that you're going to end up going for having more medical intervention, then it makes sense. But if you really are just going to try and have it be unmedicated, then it's honestly, it just gets in the way. And it's just so frustrating to deal with, especially if you're moving around and trying all the different positions and trying to bring your baby down. It just, it's just a pain. I so agree. Yeah. And even for birthing people who are planning to get medication at some point, but maybe not right when they get to the hospital, I generally recommend waiting until you're at that point. Because like you mentioned, it can become a really annoying distraction. And Mm -hmm. we're trying to create pleasurable distractions, not painful (laughs) ones. Right. Um, The sensations of contractions can be really intense and we don't want to add more intense, uncomfortable sensations to the birthing person's body. Right. And, you know, some people will ask, well, what happens if there's an emergency? Isn't it a good idea to just have the IV in? And my response 100% of the time is that I really have a lot of faith in doctors and nurses Mm -hmm. to do their jobs really well and administer an IV quickly in the event of an emergency. Yeah, absolutely. What we do in every other area of our life, you know, we get in our cars every single day without IV ports. (laughs) And we, you know, we do all kinds, we just live our human lives, which is full of risk. And we trust that if something were to happen, and we go to a hospital that they will take care of us in a timely fashion. And I, I believe the same to be true with birth. I, I believe in treating emergencies as they arrive as opposed to pathologizing birth and birthing people and treating them like, well, there's probably going to be an emergency, so we're yes. going to give this to you just in case. Yes, and I love, love, love that you just said that. It's, it's part of a mindset that you have. And like you said doctors and nurses have plenty of experience when it comes to being able to put an IV in very quickly in a situation that they need to. So I think, I think that point is so valid and important to remember. Absolutely. So let's talk about electronic fetal monitoring. So electronic fetal heart rate monitors are there to assess your baby's baseline heart rate and how it changes with contractions. So it records any increases and decreases as well as the frequency and duration of the mother's contractions. And all of that information gives us a sense of how well this baby is doing during the birthing process. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very valuable information. And in the hospital setting, there are two different types of monitoring that's available to birthing mothers. There's continuous and intermittent. Now, the standard in most hospitals is to provide continuous monitoring for babies throughout the labor and birth. So basically, when you get to the hospital, we talked about how you get the ID starter, or at least that's presented as what happens next. And then you strap on the monitors and they are looking for a 20 minute strip to see how baby's doing. More often than not, the monitors and the straps that hold the monitors in place just get left on mom and then they stay on for the duration of the labor. Mm-hmm. Um, now, studies have shown that it's not actually the best choice for low-risk women who are laboring naturally without medication. So the research has shown that continuous electronic fetal monitoring is actually associated with an increase in pain medication use, cesarean births, and instrumental vaginal births. Okay. Yeah. The reason being is that if we are looking all the time we will find things that can that may have maybe gone missed otherwise and not necessarily been a problem babies sometimes have decelerations they have dips in their heart rate and their mm-hmm. fluctuations and when we are monitoring continuously um, sometimes there can be a tendency to jump the gun and take right. action 
more quickly than necessary. So while there's been an increase in all of those things that I mentioned, there hasn't actually been an increase in um, an improvement rather in outcomes. With so the we're continuous. doing more pain meds, we're doing more operative deliveries, but we're not actually seeing better results. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think I think that's important to to talk about too because I feel like most of the time they don't mention what you just mentioned. They don't say, hey, if you have had a low-risk pregnancy and you and baby have been healthy throughout the entire pregnancy, then this we don't really need to do it continuously. I don't feel that that is said in most um, hospital settings. It's just like we talked about earlier, just the standard protocol. And I think that it should it should be talked about because everything is should be individualized to that person and a lot of the time it's not it's just okay this is the policy this is the protocol that we've had for every person who comes in in labor and we need to be thinking about the mom we need to be thinking about the baby and also like you said it doesn't really there are situations where it causes more medical intervention or causes more stress and or makes you worry because of their heart rate or you're paying attention to how big your contractions are and we really I feel that our focus should just be on tuning into our body tuning into how we're feeling pay att- paying attention to what these contractions are doing and how they're bringing our baby down instead of just instead of just focusing on watching the monitors you know Yes, I love that you brought that up. I can't even tell you how many times I have been in a birthing room where that exact scenario is playing out where everyone, mom, the partner, the birth team are just watching Mm -hmm. the monitor and watching the strip instead of actually sensing into and feeling what's happening. Um, So with intermittent monitoring, the baby does get monitored regularly, but it is not the entirety of the labor. So typically in early labor, you might check on the baby once every hour. And then as things become more active, it might be once every 20 to 30 minutes. And then when mom is pushing, it's every other contraction, or at that point, it might be continuous depending on what the baby's demonstrating. And so just to be clear that choosing intermittent monitoring doesn't mean that you are not going to be looking for your baby's heart rate, doesn't mean that you're not going to be paying close attention. You're just not paying attention Hmm. all of the time and having more trust in the process and trust that when we listen intermittently, if there is a problem, we will find it at that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um, No, I was just thinking about when I was laboring, I I had chosen to have intermittent monitoring. And even during the time when I was in labor, I remember having the monitor on and they were saying that I needed to be sitting in the bed for them to get a good read and I was just so miserable I was like I can't just sit in the bed because for me movement was the one thing that helped me and so I think like we were talking about it just needs to be individualized and based on the health of the mom and the baby and how they're feeling and what they're and paying attention to it like you said it's not it's not like you're not checking in to see how everyone's doing it's just not continuous the entire time Absolutely. And since we're sharing personal stories, I'm laughing to myself over here because I'm remembering <laughs> that I hated being monitored in my labor. Yes. I, oh my I found it to actually be really uncomfortable. Yes. I, I don't know if I've ever had a client who minded being monitored as much as I did. <laughs> the, I found that the pressure of the baby monitor against my uterus just felt so tender and uncomfortable. And so I just want to say that out loud. So if anyone else has had that experience, um, just know that you're not alone. And even when I had the epidural, the one thing that I could feel was the monitor. Oh my gosh. I'm Ellie. Um, So even, even monitored, and I wanted to be monitored. Mm -hmm. Um, Although I was fighting with my midwife the whole time, I was often saying, (laughs) not right now, just give me five more minutes, please. I wanted that information. I think that there is a lot of value in having 
uh, electronic fetal monitoring, but it, it can be an intervention. You know, we often think yeah. of interventions as things that are negative, but anytime we are intervening in the birthing person's process, we can disrupt things to a certain degree. And I definitely did feel that the monitoring for me was a disruption, which yeah. even further um, promotes my beliefs around the value of intermittent monitoring so right. that you're not having to continuously deal with navigating the sensation of the monitors, the movement of the monitors as well. Yes. Thank you for sharing for sharing pieces of your journey because it's yes. important for everybody to hear all different stories. Yes. And I just wanted to share one last thing about monitoring. Yes. Is that there there's definitely a time and place for continuous monitoring. Yes. So a few examples would be if it's a high risk pregnancy, if any complications arise during the labor, if the birthing person elects to have pain medication or the use of Pitocin. Any of those scenarios absolutely warrant continuous monitoring because all of those scenarios um, put the baby at a slightly higher risk. So because there's a higher risk, we want to be watching more carefully and we do want to be more reactive in those scenarios. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad I'm glad that you added that in into our conversation because we want to look at everything from a variety of perspectives and do what's best for mom and baby and have them know what their options are and be able to decide. Yes. So, when it comes to pain management, which I think is a really important piece to add to your birth preferences, yes. my number one tip for what to include if you're planning for a natural birth is do not offer me pain medication unless I ask for it. Yes. And I'm actually going to change what I just said regardless of what type of birth you are planning, whether it's a natural birth or you're planning to get medication, mm. I would still suggest to have your team not offer you pain meds unless you are the one asking for it. Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, I really do believe that the birthing person will know when that time comes, if that time comes, and if they are going down that path, because it can be so disorienting to be working hard in labor and have somebody just throw out the word epidural. It's yeah. like being on a diet and somebody <laughs> walking in and saying, hey, I've got this chocolate cake. You don't have to have it now. I just want you to know that I have it. And if you want it, it's here. <laughs> it's just cruel. It's I so, so wholeheartedly agree with that. So yeah. agree. Absolutely. A thousand percent. And the reason why this is important to add to your birth preferences, one, because yes, a nurse or a doctor could suggest an epidural um, as a way to help mom with coping. Um, but more importantly, it's actually standard policy in most hospitals for the anesthesiologist to go room to room, meet the patients and discuss their pain management options. So you can actually decline that visit. Oh, man. I didn't know that that was, like, in most hospitals, that it was a standard policy to do that. I didn't know that. Yeah, you know, maybe I'll say standard practice instead of policy. Um, it's it's very common if you're there during the anesthesiologist's hours. They kind of go around. They do their rounds. They'll often ask the mother's weight, her height, and medical complications get a little bit of history so that if she does end up going down the route of needing medication for whatever reason, they already have all that information. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it makes sense, but it's also making assumptions about what their birth is going to be. So I guess it just doesn't sit very well with me. <laughs> yes, I agree. And again, I am not against pain medication. As I mentioned, I got an epidural during my labor. It was so helpful. Yeah. And it was even more helpful that nobody ever offered it to me because I probably would have taken it a lot sooner than I would have decided. Right. So it's so important to 
choose your own path and not have those decisions unconsciously made for you. Yes, I love that. And I think, like you said, it's so important that the people who are within your birth space, A, know what your preferences are and B, are not going to be pushing things on you. You want to feel empowered and supported and you want to feel like you don't have to. I think one of the things that I've been just thinking about a lot lately is just that I feel that because of a lot of these standard hospital protocol or policies that we are we so often have to advocate for ourselves and push back against things and it's very frustrating to me because I feel like people who are within your birth space should respect what you want, what your birth preferences are, and shouldn't be pushing for things that are do not align with you. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think a lot of you know the work that you're doing with your podcast, the work that I'm doing with my clients is really about breaking down this very old structure around the medical model where it was kind of built on this idea that the doctors know best and they are the authority of your health and the work that we're doing individually and together is to help birthing people and their partners and families understand that you are the ultimate authority of your body and of your baby's well-being and that your doctors and your midwives are there to collaborate with you and support you in your health care. Absolutely. I love that so much. And I think you're so right. And I think that there are many doulas and midwives and mothers who are really using their voice um, to talk about these things and open up conversations about these things and even, even open up conversations with care providers, you know? I mean, the system that we currently have has so many flaws. And like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, there's been a lot of unnecessary medical intervention um, that happens. And there are ways that we can work to avoid that, you know? Absolutely. So I mentioned a moment ago about being the authority over your baby's well-being. So I want to segue now into talking a bit about getting clear on what your choices are around standard newborn procedures such as cord clamping, vitamin K medication, and the erythromycin eye ointment. And again, when it comes to all of these, almost nobody is going to ask you what you want to do. they will just be done. And so it's great to get clear ahead of time. So when it comes to delayed cord clamping, fun fact is that at the time of birth, there is one third of the baby's blood volume is still inside the placenta. Yes. So that's a lot of blood. If somebody took a third of my blood volume right now, I think I'd be laid out on the ground. (laughs) And so when we are talking about delayed cord clamping, there's so much research out now about the importance of lowering risk of anemia, more oxygen for baby, better outcomes for babies overall, especially preterm babies. Mm So a lot of doctors have been shifting their practices around delayed cord clamping. And the practice is typically wait until the cord stops pulsing. Yes. Now, that is a little tricky because when you touch the cord repeatedly, it will trigger a response to stop pulsing. And so one of the best things that you can do if you are wanting to optimize your baby's blood volume is to actually request that your doctor, your care provider is hands off with the cord unless there's a medical emergency and wait until the placenta is born. That's like really out there as far as conversations with a hospital care provider. Most people say, okay, we're gonna wait a minute or we're gonna wait five minutes. I think that it can be helpful to 
set an amount of time and ask for the care provider to be hands off with the cord until you've reached that time. Yeah. So a lot of people kind of choose five minutes because it's more middle of the ground. But if you're really wanting to be as optimal as possible, wait till the placenta is born. And then you know for sure that the cord has transfused all of the blood by that point. Yeah. I love that you share that because first and foremost, like you said, a lot of these things are just not even discussed at all. Like the delayed cord clamping, vitamin K, or the erythromycin is just, it's not even a, t- a conversation. It's just like, this is just what we do, um, yeah. which is super frustrating in general. But then too, I love talk that you shared that bit about um, not touching the cord and the fact that it will actually trigger it to move more. So I think that we definitely need a far more hands-off approach when it comes to babies being being born, excuse me, <laughs> coming into this world. And then also too, with the birth of the placenta as well, I did not know that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And that also, while you were speaking, that made me think of the fact that waiting until the cord stops pulsing, that's, it's objective. You know, it's something that one person is feeling and deciding upon as opposed to waiting for the placenta or setting a set time that we can all look at the clock and see, okay, it has been five minutes, now it's time. Yes. Um, so I think that there is still more progress to be made with delayed cord clamping. Yay. I'm so Yay. glad that you shared that because I'm learning I'm learning more and more and more. And I know that all of the listeners who are listening to this episode are learning so much too. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Do we have time to talk about the vitamin K shot and the eye ointment? We do. We have time. Great. Okay. So the vitamin K shot, it's routinely administered to prevent vitamin K deficiency bleeding, which essentially is a blood clotting disorder. And this shot is administered within two hours of the birth. Now, when it comes to vitamin K, you have the option to get the standard shot you can decline the medication entirely, or you can do the oral medication, which is actually more commonly used outside of the US in Germany, Sweden, and the Netherlands. Um, That's all I'm gonna say about the vitamin K shot and oral medication, because there's a lot more to be said there, but just knowing that there are options. And so if you're yes. curious about that, you can dive in a little bit deeper and look up the different options. Absolutely. About that. Absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned the different options because the oral option is oftentimes not even presented beforehand or at that once the baby is born. So I love that you share that. It's very important. Yes. And the main reason why it's not presented is because if you want to do the oral medication, then that is something that you actually have to purchase yourself right. for yourself. Right. So they're not going to offer it to you because they don't even, they don't have that. Absolutely. And I think that it's important to talk about that. And that's the other thing too, is that if you don't know what your options are, you're not going to know ahead of time, Hey, I need to bring this along with me. So thank you for sharing that with us. Exactly. My pleasure. And the last newborn piece that I'll talk about with you is the erythromycin eye ointment. So this is an antibiotic eye ointment that is routinely administered topically to the newborn's eyes within the first hour after birth. So this treatment is done to prevent eye infections caused by certain organisms from sexually transmitted infections, primarily gonorrhea and chlamydia. So, babies who are born to mothers who have tested positive for gonorrhea or chlamydia should definitely receive this treatment. If those babies were to get an eye infection and that eye infection was not treated properly, that could actually result in blindness. So, babies resulting in blindness is a really big deal, so you can understand why every single baby in America is given the erythromycin eye ointment. Right. And again, it's not presented as a, would you like to do this? It's presented as, now it's time to do the eye ointment unless you ask otherwise. Right. So some of the reasons why 
this is a an important choice to make is if you are in an open or polyamorous relationship and maybe your test results are not the same as they were in the beginning of your pregnancy or perhaps you do not know that you are in an open relationship and there <laughs> might be a degree of unfaithfulness. So they're really trying to catch everyone who might possibly test positive. But if you are in a long-term monogamous relationship and you feel very solid in your STI results, mm -hmm. um, this doesn't really apply to you. Right. This is only for babies who are exposed to gonorrhea or chlamydia. Yes. So again, the decision is yours. As far as you know, the downsides of the eye ointment, we generally recommend not doing anything, if possible, within that first hour of mm -hmm. a baby's birth. We like to call that the golden hour and yes. to leave as much distractions and interruptions off to the side if possible. It can create a visual barrier for baby and a very small percentage of babies can actually get an eye infection from chemical sensitivities to the antibiotics. It's a very, very, very small percentage, but I like to talk about that because that is a part of the education. Yeah, it's a yeah. part. It's a part of the individualized care that we've been talking about this entire episode. So yes, it's important. Um, and then you did also mention one more thing yes. to talk about, which I would love to hear you talk about, which is the placenta encapsulation. If people, some people don't even know that this is a thing, so I would love to hear you share a bit about that. Yes, so when it comes to your placenta, I, I love encouraging birthing people to ask your provider to give you a tour of your placenta after your baby is born. Only if that doesn't make you feel too squeamish, if that like makes your skin crawl, you do not need to look at your placenta. But it can be really cool to see, like, wow, this is where your baby lives. So even yeah. just having that experience of Kind of visually and energetically meeting your placenta and seeing this organ that you and your baby created together it's pretty awesome in my opinion yeah obviously biased because i am a midwife and a placenta encapsulator <laughs> but as far as on a medicinal level i think that placenta pills can be a really powerful and gentle way to ingest your placenta some people We'll do it in smoothies because it's cost saving to do it that way. You can ask a friend or a partner or family member to do that. Placenta pills, I generally recommend outsourcing that to a placenta encapsulation specialist or doula. Yes. And it is, it's kind of the perfect medicine for your healing and rejuvenation after birth. Placentas have been used for their healing properties since the 1500s, which actually dates back before modern medicine even existed. This wow. is something that was traditionally used in Asian countries, particularly in China. Oh my goodness, that is so cool. I did not, another, see, you're just blowing my mind with all the knowledge <laughs> that you're it's dropping. It's pretty rad. And, you know, some of the benefits of placenta encapsulation, which you probably already know, are increasing and enriching breast milk, increasing your overall energy, fighting off fatigue, supporting the rebuilding of iron, which is really valuable, faster recovery. And then the number one thing that all of my clients have experienced is a boost in their mood. Yes. So it really does help to kind of even things out on a mood and energy level. But I do like to say that if a person is consuming their placenta to pay extra attention to how it impacts their body. Yes. So most mothers feel great after taking their placenta pills, but if you start experiencing any negative side effects like feeling jittery or really engorged or starting to bleed more, um, try cutting back the pills or eliminating them altogether to see if they are the culprit. So I have had, let's say, I think I have encapsulated maybe a hundred placentas approximately, and I've had three moms 
wife suggested to discontinue their placenta consumption. I've never heard that. It didn't it didn't work for their body? They got like too hopped up on their placenta pills and actually felt they had trouble sleeping. They noticed that their milk production was too much. And so, you know, every body and every placenta is different. So I think it can be really great to have your placenta pills, whether or not you plan to take them, they're there. If you want them, you can't really go back into the biohazard bin and take your placenta out after your postpartum and you're feeling like, wow, I'd really <laughs> like to try this out, but you can have it in your fridge and in your freezer and experiment with it, see how it works for your body. Yeah, I actually, I encapsulated my placenta and I feel like it made a huge difference for me because there were, I wanted to see if I noticed a difference. So I was taking it for a few days in the morning and then I stopped taking it and then I realized it was really, I felt like it was helping me. So I started taking it again and I really, I enjoyed it a lot. I feel like it helped the postpartum period. I'm so happy to hear that. My placenta is still in my freezer. Someday, maybe this spring, maybe this call will inspire me to finally plant it in my yard. Um, So I didn't encapsulate my placenta because I spiked a low fever during my labor. And that is actually one of the scenarios that is contraindicated to placenta consumption. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So fever can be associated with an infection. And if there's an infection in your body, the placenta can also get infected. And when you're postpartum, you don't want to be consuming something that had an infection in it. So there are, that is maybe the only scenario in which you would not want to encapsulate your placenta. Good to know. Good to know. Thank you for saying and you that. Can keep it in your freezer for 20 months. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's it's funny. I remember when I first learned about placentas and then I really when I really got into birth work and I was just fascinated by them <laughs> and like I couldn't stop talking about them or looking at them and then I, I remember I could not wait to see what mine looked like and for people who are not in the birth space or super passionate about the birth space they're like why are you so excited about that <laughs> why are you talking about it so much but it's just so cool your body literally grows another organ to nourish your baby it's just it is so magical to me I am right there with you, and I've had many people make fun of me over the years, especially when I started encapsulating them, and I'd have like two or three placentas in my fridge at any given moment. Um, Yeah, as we're talking right now, above my head is uh, hanging my placenta print. Oh, you have one. I do. I feel really grateful for that. That's another cool thing that... Um, you or someone can do for you is to actually use the blood from the placenta, which might make some people feel really squeamish, right? Um, and make a print on paper, and it's really neat. It looks like a tree of life, so it's it's a pretty cool keepsake. Yeah, maybe we can um, in the show notes or we can include like a fo- a link to a photo of what like a yes. print looks like, just so people can get an idea of it. Definitely. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and your experience with us. This has been such an eye-opening conversation and educational conversation. It's been so wonderful. I just wanted to see if you had any like final words to leave people with, any final pieces of advice. Yeah. So again, thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I could talk about birth and postpartum all day long. <laughs> so um, you know, as far as final words and pieces of advice, the thing that comes to mind for me in this moment is to make sure that not only is your care provider on the same page as you, more importantly, that your most intimate support person, whether that be a husband or wife or partner, or maybe that person is your mom or your sister, that person is 100% 
on the same page as you. And if you are not on the same page, please hash that out in your pregnancy. Because it can be really tricky to have something written on paper and then you get into the birthing room and you can feel that that discord, that tension of two people who are not necessarily in agreement. And that can be a really challenging time and space to be navigating difference when you are already in labor. And so like I said earlier, this process of creating your birth preferences really about sparking a dialogue and seeing those conversations through all the way to the end even if they're uncomfortable absolutely oh my gosh such such good advice to leave listeners with today um thank you so so much i know i've already said thank you a bunch of times but it has been such an incredible conversation i know so many people are going to benefit from it and i'm excited for everyone to listen to it you Well, thank you so, so much listeners for joining us. I will be including where everybody can find Gabrielle if they would like to reach out. As always, if you have any questions for myself or if you have any questions for Gabrielle, please reach out to either one of us. And if you feel like this was an episode that you learned a lot from, that you benefited from, or you feel like someone you know would benefit from, please share it with them. It means the world to get these conversations about birth and pregnancy and postpartum and motherhood out into the world and to open up conversations about it, open up conversations that may not be comfortable. So thank you guys so, so much for joining us and we will be back next week. Bye.